Welcome to God's Planning, Contemplative Preachers, Contemporary Age. Each week, join the Dominican Friars as they consider all things Catholic. Welcome to God's Planning. I am Father Gregory Pine, and I'm joined here by Father Bonaventure Chapman. Father Hello. Bonaventure, how are we doing? Great, Father Gregory, how are you doing? Uh, I'd say feeling pretty groovy. It's a Things new year. Well. It is. Any uh, excitement things coming up? Uh, let's Trips, see. Tours, Aquinas 101, plug. Oh, yeah, sure, yeah, okay. Um, exciting things coming up. Well, um, the, the spring semester is starting here and abroad, so people are kind of getting back into classes and reading and perhaps thinking about their paper topics as concerns the Thomistic Institute. We've got some exciting things on the horizon conference-wise for the semester. So we're having a big conference at Harvard the first weekend of April, which will be on science uh, and faith and science, basically, so like uh, Christianity and Cosmic Origins. So some cool astrophysicists and astrochemists and philosophers and theologians. And then we're also having, on the same day, a conference at Duke, uh, and that'll be about Newman. And Bishop Robert Barron is the keynote there. So simultaneously in uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, and in Durham, North Carolina, there'll be excellent conferences with some excellent speakers. So I'm looking forward to those events and uh, working on my bi-location skills in the meantime. Yeah, have fun. Yeah, thanks. Uh, how about you? How are things at the philosophy school? Can't complain. Uh, starting the second semester. So, um, yeah, just get back to coursework and uh, preparing for, yeah, second, yeah, lots of courses on logic and some Catholic stuff and in intention, G.E. Amscombe, maybe we'll talk about that at some point, mm. Catholic moral philosophy at Oxford, and there's a whole, well, the virtue ethics kind of redevelops um, in that time in, in England, and she has lots of interesting things to say. So, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. Nice. So, I mean, this is tangential, and besides the point, we'll get to the main substance of the conversation, but you're studying philosophy, all right? So you're a Catholic priest, mm. you're studying philosophy, uh, so you're not studying theology, uh, you're studying philosophy, and specifically, right. you're studying a lot of modern philosophy. So mm-hmm. you have an interest in Kant and Hegel, and I suspect that a lot of our listeners, if they were to read those authors, they would find them kind of confusing. Uh, mm. I find them kind of confusing, mm, and right. they might find the the contribution that they make to the philosophical world uh, kind of confusing, maybe mm. dubious. Yes. Um, so you're you're learning about things which a lot of people would would probably think, at least at first blush, aren't especially important. So give the plug for knowing modern philosophy. Give the plug for being read up on non-Christians or atheists or maybe Christians of a different persuasion, people who fall without the bounds of your tradition. Sure. Well, um, I suppose one is that I think it's a Dominican thing to do is to pay attention to those outside of our tradition, to bring in other points for debating points, uh, also to clarify our own positions. I think you... Just like when you, if you live a, abroad, if you live in a different country, that's when you start to actually realize or you start to more fully realize what it means to be from your own country as a citizen. So I've got this experience. Maybe you've got other people have had this experience of living abroad for, for a year or two or so and realizing that you're not taking for granted all the things in America and then realizing how they've influenced you. So in the same way, studying other traditions, I think, is really helpful to realize not only what other people are saying, especially really important traditions, I mean, whether you like Kant or not, or Hegel or not, or modern philosophy or not, they set the terms of the debate and have done so for the last 200 years. So if we want to speak and evangelize to others, it's helpful to know the terms of the debate and to understand some of the nuances, distinctions that we can help them with. But also, I think it, it assists in knowing your own tradition uh, really well. So reading someone who comes from a different tradition allows you to look at 
the different presuppositions and assumptions and the good parts that you did not realize because you just took it for granted in the Thomistic tradition or the Catholic tradition or something. So I think it's it's helpful pragmatically for apologetic work and mm-hmm. for living in the modern world, but also helpful for your own positions and realizing the depth and the value of, of Thomas and the Catholic philosophical tradition as well. When those There are pieces in that that are missing from the modern tradition. So that's what I'd, I'd say. Nice. That, that gives me an idea for a future episode. Maybe we could do something where I suspect a lot of a lot of people, a lot of listeners have a sense that, you know, maybe a half dozen modern philosophers are probably important for the conversation and would help them to have a better appreciation for the presuppositions mm-hmm. or the thinking of modernity. I think here of Nietzsche, maybe Foucault, sure. Derrida. Yeah. Or like, you know, to go a little earlier, think about it like Descartes oh, sure. or David Hume, you know, mm-hmm. Kant and Hegel uh, or Kierkegaard. What if we were to know maybe... Uh, three to five minute thumbnail sketch just enough to be dangerous but not enough to be wholly sympathetic that might be a nice episode in the future just to kind of give episode, yeah. yeah just to give a little, little insights little windows into the souls of philosophers who have brought us to the current contemporary setting i would say it's also uh, i had a, a teacher a professor down in, in orlando when i was a protestant charles mckenzie who gave me a phrase he said it takes a lot of truth to float in error and uh, I like that image, and I think it's it's true that even those who are an, an error or are different or are wrong or heretical or whatever we want, to, however we want to describe, depending on the different person, there's still a lot of truth to be gotten there. And I think Thomas realized that when he was studying the the uh, Averroists and his own his own context. So, yeah, to say something wrong, you I think you have to say a lot of things right. Nice. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's jump shift then into the task at hand, our uh, our topic for today. So we're asking the question, is it a sin to speed? Speeding mm. here specifically about, you know, an automobile driving a car at, you know, a speed exceeding that of the posted speed limit. Uh, yeah. So that way we're, we're set on the terms. And I think we should probably start with our existential situation. So what is what is the place in which many drivers find themselves today? <laughs> I mean, I, this is one of the most interesting positions because I think basically everyone does it. Now, I did, when I went to a, a Protestant college, Grove City College, I did know... Uh, a member of the hockey team I was playing on who he was an evangelical Christian and I was at the time, but he also, he never went over the speed limit. He always was 55 and under or 30 and under. And that was for him like a, uh, an absolute, an absolute. But that was the exception that proves the rule. Whenever you're driving, I mean, basically everyone is speeding. I was driving today and drove by police officers going seven to 10 over. And that was trying to keep up with traffic on 95 on I-95 so that everyone is going above the speed. In fact, it's strange when you see someone actually going the speed limit or whatever that means. So I think we all find ourselves in a situation where it seems perfectly natural to go over the speed limit, and yet it is a speed limit, and therefore it's a law. And I think most of us take laws seriously and think, well, laws just aren't up for grabs. We should probably follow them. I mean, there's a law against murdering people, for instance, and we don't go, wow, it just feels natural just to kill everyone around me. Um, we all follow that one. But the speeding <laughs> is the, it's just the strangest thing. I don't think there's anyone listening to this, I suspect, who thinks that, well, I just, yeah, I've, I've never felt compelled to go 56 into 55. <laughs> or I dare say anyone thinking that's just obviously the same as you know, uh, drowning kittens. Like it's, that's just as bad. I, it's the weird, yeah. Speeding is just one of the strange, but it opens up a lot of issues about, well, 
yeah, is it a sin? Is breaking laws a sin? What does it mean to break a law? What is morality related to law? All these kind of things. So I think speeding as an existential like event of driving on I-95 and being realizing that you're going over the speed limit opens up thinking about how does morality relate to law and sin and grace and all these sort of things. Nice. So let's just let's launch right in. So St. Thomas defines a law as an ordinance of reason given by a competent authority for the common good and promulgated. Mm-hmm. So it's an ordinance of reason. So law isn't something that's just asserted as if the authority were saying my way or the highway, irrespective of human nature or the particular setting in life of this community or circumstance as it concerns, mm-hmm. you know, like the here and now. He's saying that given what we know, given the, the corporate wisdom of this body politic, this is a thing which will be for our good. And he's the one who has care of it because he's been either elected or he has inherited or whatever. And he's doing it with an eye to the common good. So not to his own particular good or to the particular private good of other citizens, but for the good of the body. And then promulgated, he makes it known. So speeding, Mm -hmm. you know, it, it concerns us as a law, but maybe as a way of understanding why we feel an aversion to being hemmed in on the road. We can talk about aversion to law in general. Mm -hmm. So I think a lot of people's experience is that you don't really want to do something until such time as you are told not to do that thing. And this functions psychologically, like don't think of a pink elephant. You know, we've all heard this example. We don't need it rehearsed for us again. But whenever you're told, I want you to do anything apart from this thing, the thing that's excluded becomes very attractive. So what is it about law? Maybe what are some resources for understanding why it is that we struggle to abide by the law? Well, I wonder if there's also a difference here, um, coming from a more German background. Like, I, when someone says, this is law, I get excited. <laughs> um, because, because all of a sudden, now I'm given an opportunity to be moral. You know, without, like, without like an ordinance that one must follow, then I, morality is kind of up to me. Whereas law is like this objective standard. So, for instance, like jaywalking principle, like the jaywalking, you're not allowed to jaywalk. That means that every time I go to my classes over at CUA or something... Um, instead of saving myself five minutes when no one at all is um, driving across the street, I will sit and watch the wait for the light to change and walk across, and I'll wait for the other light to change so it's impossible to make both of them at the same time. And but that's a moment where I can drill down and I feel like I the, the good has been achieved. Like so, um, so that could be different. Other people might feel this might might feel differently. Or for instance, when you're sitting at like a traffic light, a red light at two a.m. in the morning, say, mm. or something on a deserted road, no one's around. There's no. You know, you just keep your foot on the brake, and by doing that, you are doing good. That's my that's my conception. But I think in general, what you're going for, and that maybe is just Protestant background, um, but the, in general, I, we don't we don't like people telling us what to do. I think there's this. It's certainly part of our our, our nature as as our fallen nature to rebel against authority. I mean, this is from Lucifer and onward. So there is this there is a sense of. Uh, the old man, you could say, in us, the flesh saying, you can't tell me what to do. And this goes, you can even do this developmentally as children. You know, this is true. I remember when I was teaching class, there was a bell that I had to end periods. And I just put the bell on the thing. I put a little sign on it said, don't touch. And I knew that if I put the sign, don't touch, people would be more likely to touch it than <laughs> if, if if I didn't do it, which, which to your point. Uh, except for those who just love that. And they were just craving that sign that told them what to do. So, but I think there is a rebellion, we, this rebellious aspect to law, and a lot because some laws just don't seem to make sense. Hmm. Like, it seems like, what is the point of law? What are the point of these traffic laws, these kind of little laws? I mean, everyone kind of agrees with murder, but we also wouldn't do that if it wasn't promulgated, I hope. It's hmm. not like we don't kill people because 
because someone said we shouldn't. It's because there's a natural feeling to this. But like traffic laws and things, they're about social coordination and their ordinance of reason, so they have a purpose to them. And I think we feel like we are the ones that can adjudicate when that purpose is best met or when that purpose is superfluous at this point and we could meet our objectives better without it. So their traffic laws are these weird just social coordination laws that for some reason we have a sense of, well, it's for this purpose and I can adjudicate that. Yeah. And I think too, like each of us has a sense that we're unique and individual, which is true. And we feel that we are best competent to set the terms for our own life. And that to have some kind of blanket statement or generic law that Mm. is thought to apply to me or no me, you know, like when you're driving, you're like, well, you know, crazy people should observe that speed limit, but I'm a very competent, you know, so like we always have exceptions for ourselves when it comes to interfacing with the law, because we feel that the law can't possibly account for me adequately. It's for others that are are nefarious or incompetent (laughs) or dangerous and all that, but not human beings like myself. Yeah. Like others. We're better... We all rate ourselves on a B plus to an A minus scale. The laws are meant for C, D, F people. So it's obviously not meant for us. Yeah, yeah that's right. And I think, but but here we're going to start to work into the conversation about speeding itself. And uh, I think that a good way to get into that is just to talk about how the law is good or, or, mm. or how the law presents us with certain goods. So you can think just kind of experientially, oftentimes making decisions in life can be difficult or it can take a lot of time or it can be agonizing. Whereas when you encounter a law, like you said, there's an immediate delight with knowing exactly what's expected of you, right? So, you know, say in the context of a religious house, you want, you want to be obedient, right? You came, you came to religion precisely to be, to be perfect, to love the Lord as best you know how. And you want things asked of you, so that way you can sacrifice in a kind of concrete way. Mm. And so, too, when the law is made known, you don't really need to go through agonizing steps of taking counsel and deliberating and judging and, you know, formulating an intention and bringing it about all of which are good and and contribute to your moral maturation, but it's just very present to you in black and white that this is the thing to be done. Uh, It's made immediately evident and that by by stepping into it, right, you can can do a good thing. And immediately efficient as well. For social organization processes, why these these coordination laws exist, because imagine if we didn't have any traffic laws or just individual prudence. Well, when would you stop? Who would have the right of way? This sort of thing. I mean, it would be a disaster. Sure. Like, imagine you didn't have traffic lights or stop signs. You could exist, but it wouldn't. It'd be incredibly inefficient. You wouldn't actually be able to achieve the goods which are involved in living a communal life and traveling with each other. So the laws are there to allow one the conditions, in a sense, of living the good life in a particular form. Yeah, I think that's a good place to take a little break. Uh, we'll we'll mull that over and be back with you shortly. This is God's Planning. Get up to date on all our latest episodes at opeast.org slash godsplaining. All right, welcome back to God's Planning. We're talking about is speeding a sin? So far, we haven't given a clear statement to that. We're not trying to be cagey. We're not trying to be coy. We're just trying to situate the argument in such a way that we have an appreciation for the goods at stake. So, so far, we've been talking about what law is, why law is good, what law kind of how, how to say, how law inspires us or might re- revolt us and what we, what we can do to contend with the latter and uh, incline towards the former. <clears throat> so let's talk then just briefly about obeying the law and then talk about mm-hmm. the goods of driving and then, and then speeding in particular. 
So naturally, obeying the law, we've said, is part of the moral life. Mind you, we talk here a lot about virtue. So Mm. obeying the law isn't the whole of the moral life because the purpose of life isn't not to break the law. The purpose of life is to be a saint, right? To to fire on all cylinders, to bring all of those most human of our of our powers to their ultimate term, to their perfection. So to grow in grace and virtue and exercise of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And and those things can't be adequately accounted for by the law uh, because charity, you know, it includes justice, but it goes beyond it. Because when you're when you love somebody, you don't ask um, how can I not offend them or what is what is necessary, but rather how much can I do and you know how best can I express my love. So we're not, we're not trying to reduce the moral life to just obeying the law, but mm. we see how obeying the law in this instance is something that can hold out to us a certain good. So maybe maybe then we can just move to the goods of driving, mm-hmm. um, talk about the goods that are at stake. Uh, when you, I don't know, this would be like a spirituality of the road. Uh, so what Journeying. Exactly. <laughs> hey, queen yeah. of the, our lady of the highways, right? That's right. So we've got a patron. Now yeah. all we need is a content. Yeah. Um, so what would you say is, so when we think about driving, what are the goods, or it's, what are the goods at stake? How, how can we think about driving as giving us access to a good life? I mean, obviously driving allows one to communicate with others, not by like car phone, I mean. But face-to-face, you're able to get somewhere, to visit people, to do things uh, much more quickly. Uh, there's a good in driving in itself, I suppose. Some people don't like driving. Some people do like driving. You get to exercise and your your practical abilities. You know, this, I mean, if you want to be a... Some people are race car drivers. It's a sort of good practice of the practice of driving. But generally, it's an instrumental good of trying to get somewhere. And it's an effective one because you don't have to walk a whole place and uh and although you know we do live in a society where perhaps we drive a little too much um you know sometimes i remember i lived in in buffalo with my brother and then we would go to dinner sometimes at a, at a pub down about a 20 minute walk and it's like a two minute drive but we just decided you know we're going to do the walk back and forth that sort of thing because there was a good to that but there's tens of times just time wise we have so much to do and there's so many wonderful things and people to see driving allows you to do that quit more efficiently mm. i think um so it's an instrumental good for the community and for communication and for communion yeah. you could say of people and it sounds like it's super spiritual like communion yeah, communio yeah, yeah. you know of the road but it is true if driving does bring people together and it brings us to our families quicker and more often these sort of things so that that's the good is the communion with others that's the point of driving so anything well the sins, you could say, would be something would be against that good. So it's good to set the good first, and then talk about why, yeah, why it would be wrong, not why it would be wrong to speed or drive recklessly, because they would damage and hinder those kind of goods. Yeah. You know? No, I like. Okay, so I want to uh, stay with the insight about the difference between a two-minute drive and a twenty-minute walk. Mm. I think that pro- it's probably the case that a lot of us drive too much or more than we might need to. Uh, maybe that's not universally so. Our cities are set up. The suburbs, and if you grew up in the suburbs, they're just they're set up for cars, yeah, right? Sure. So it it's just conducive to it. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm not being moralistic about this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Drive, But like there, it, it's just the natural tendency. So I yeah. find myself saying, well, do I have to drive there? Would actually be there be another good here? And oftentimes it's like, no, it'd be better to drive there. Yeah. Okay. So maybe just to set up an analogy, you can think about the different ways in which we can communicate with other people. Mm-hmm. So you can speak to them face to face, right? You can call them on the telephone, you can text them, you can email them, snail mail. you can write them snail mail, right? And um, with each, you know, like I, I think that the, the different mm-hmm. kinds of communication connote a different degree of intimacy, right? That's so right. the ones that are more immediate tend to be a little less intimate, a little less fraught or freighted. Uh, I mean, like, but in a certain sense, they can just be more trivial, more business-like and okay. things like that. 
But I think that oftentimes when we get in the habit of using the least, the like lower forms of communication or, or less intimate forms of communication, it can have a way of trivializing some of our communication. That's true. So like, like, you know, when somebody leaves you a voicemail, you're like, what in the world? You know, like, why did someone leave me a voicemail? Like, delete. They'll text me if it need be, you know, yeah, understood. Carrier pigeon, whatever. <laughs> so I think I'm, I'm trying to set up an analogy here with driving. I think that sometimes when we get in the habit of always driving to places distant, it telescopes the world for us. It kind of collapses mm-hmm. distances a little bit, but it also it puts our it, it puts our communication um, on a standard a standard of like efficiency, perhaps is what I'm trying to say. The over, yeah, the overwhelming it, it, with all technological advances, the danger of them, I suppose. I think this is true, is that efficiency becomes the primary good, and it moves from instrumental good to the aim of it, and then you realize that you're just be doing things more quickly, and then you wonder, well, what am I doing the other times? Yeah, you know, well. Yeah, maybe it's maybe it's okay to take your time with something. You're not that important, that kind of stuff. Yeah, and you add that to the fact that a lot of times in the car people are multitasking. Mm. So a lot of times in the car people are on the phone. Oh, they're texting, or they're listening the to music, yeah. or they're listening to a podcast. Mm-hmm. Maybe you're listening to this podcast in the car right now on your commute. Yeah. And so, thank you. There you go. We're, we're delighted you are. Um, so so like sometimes the way that we interact with the road isn't like. We're not thinking about the good of driving. We're wholly instrumentalizing it, and we're also packing it with as an efficient action as we can muster. Mm. So we're trying to use our time as well as we can imagine it be used. Mm -hmm. But I think that this can contribute to, it's not insignificant that a lot of people experience road rage. You know, like we talk about road rage. We don't talk about walking rage. So why is that? Because it's a very concentrated environment of efficiency. You're thinking about getting there quickly. You begin to think about other people in your way as obstacles. Mm. And you being in your kind of closed in car, it's like you're like a separate universe. You can be hurtling down the highway at 82 miles per hour and you look over and there's a completely different person with a completely different life hurtling down the highway in in like a box with four wheels just right Mm. next to you. You could reach out and touch them. It's crazy to think about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, but, but like everyone, I think to a, to a certain extent, and this isn't a universal condemnation, this is kind of a self-exploration, I suppose, but, but with, a, with, a, with an understanding that this need be done efficiently. Mm-hmm. So I think here, having talked about the goods, about communion mm-hmm. and telescoping a distant world and mm-hmm. a sprawling world, but then the, some of the temptations which might arise in the wake of those goods, we have a sense for, okay, so what's the tension here? What's the tension that's at stake? And I think this is a good way to frame the argument about speeding in particular, whether it might be sinful. And also because uh, the stakes are really high with, I mean, walking again, you could bump into someone, but they're probably not going to hurt them significantly if you do that. You know, it'd be fine. Maybe it'd be an interesting interaction. <laughs> but like if you bump into someone going 80, like it's not, it's an interesting interaction, but it's a dangerous, uh, a dangerous one for sure. So th- there's a lot more, yeah, there's a lot more potential for significant harm here as opposed to walking or jogging or something, even riding a bike, you could say. Yeah. yeah. So that, that brings a moral valence to it or it brings, it brings up more questions uh, for for pondering about how we do use the road because of the possible. Now, again, we all think, of course, I'm never going to get a car accident. Or if I did, I'm just never going to have it again. Or like five is enough. Like you can't get in a car accident six times. Um, we just don't think that it's just it just happened, you know. But then we should, well, actually it, it's, it's possible. I mean, plenty of people like traffic accidents and car accidents we all know is a significant cause of death and a lot of those i suspect aren't because people are going the speed limit or under the speed limit or something it's because they're driving recklessly or driving too quickly or not paying attention the instrumentalization of it so there's a lot of dangers here and that's why i think it's not just a matter of following the rules but the morality behind that the goods are great but also the the evils that temptations that are there are significant yeah yeah so that brings it into the moral calculus i think yeah 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 so how about how about at this point we just put forward 
like just put forward your prudence about uh, speeding. Like what's 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 reasonable, what's unreasonable, or what what are some of the concrete prudential considerations that ought to be taken account of as you set the speed. You know, specific, I mean, it's very mm. clear when you do use cruise control. Okay, yeah. so you're you're on 95 northbound. You're going towards Bucks County, Pennsylvania, and the posted speed limit is 65. Uh, how do you have the confidence to set the speed, your speed on your, on your car at 69 or at 72 or something like mm, that? Yeah. So like what, what are, what's the prudence that informs that? What's the background? Yeah. I think one is, is how everyone else is, is traveling. Yeah. Now you can't do that entirely because if everyone starts traveling like 75 and then everyone concentrates on 80. So at some point, like it's crazy. Um, but there is a sense of the safe, the, the point of driving the road, you want to be careful and you want to be safe. And sometimes actually driving slowly is more dangerous because people are always passing you on both sides, this sort of thing. And you might say, well, that's that's their their problem. But yeah, it is. But if it leads to a car accident or something, then that was avoidable. Then you know maybe it's that's prudence dictates that. Well, if the flow of traffic is at 72, and I'm going 65, and people are passing and traveling, I'm actually making it more dangerous. And it's the police officer's job if they if the police decide like actually 72 is not where it should be then they will, well, they'll promulgate the law in a way. And it seems to at least most people's experience, traffic cam- cameras changes a bit, but is that the law is promulgated that if you go over f- five miles or seven miles, you're not going to be stopped. You know, mm-hmm. I don't think many people have that experience. Definitely five miles per hour. So apparently the law is flexible in that because those who are the law givers yeah. are not promulgating that. So that has to be weighed in with the prudence is the, the safety of those around. That, that's, that's to me, a significant issue. Sure. And I think, too, so like we live in the District of Columbia. If you pass a speed camera going fewer than 10 miles over the speed limit, you will not be ticketed. Uh, and in the state of Maryland, immediately adjoining, if you go fewer than 12 miles, you will not be ticketed. Oh, is that true? Yeah, so it's like enforceability is something that weighs into our moral calculus. Why, why is that? Is it because the law only applies if it can be enforced? No, right? Mm-hmm. But it is a kind of standard or measure of what the law is intended to regulate. Mm-hmm. And so in the case of a speed limit, it's strange because the word is limit, right? Yeah. So it's supposed to dictate a limit, a frontier, an extremity, something that ought not be transgressed. Um, so like, for instance, there's a legal limit for blood alcohol level. And if you're even the smallest unit above that, you have, it's a DWI, right? So that, that limit is strictly enforced, but it seems customarily in the United States of America that speed limits are understood flexibly. Mm -hmm. And we're not trying to like hedge or muddy the waters or make it somehow wild and wooly, but it's seen as something that, you know, it, it changes with climate, climate. It changes mm-hmm. conditions with of the road. conditions of the road. It changes with time of day, whether it's light or dark and things like that. Certainly. So it's posted as a kind of prudence that should govern most all circumstances. But on a, on a immaculate day with a clear road, with very few cars, with the speed of traffic being such, I think there, it's, it is envisioned in the law that you would have a little bit of latitude. Not, 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 not anything crazy, but you know, a couple miles over the speed limit wouldn't represent a transgression. It wouldn't be something that you would say, I have sinned. Yeah, it's, it seems that at least... That's the if if we assume that the the police and the courts are the arbiters and the interpreters in a sense of of the meaning of the law, they clearly it clearly seems that they intended to be interpreted this way, um, since they don't since you don't get in troubles. Now that's not to say that that you decide what the law is. Of course, it's a moral good to be following the law to obey the law for these sort of things. But the traffic speed limit is a is a, just a weird case in this way. But again, it's because it's it's not a criminal. It's not dealing with the criminal issue in the same way. It's more about a coordination thing, which has to involve particular prudence. 
uh, on top of the general obligation to to obey a law. And it's a limited law. It's, it's a law, but limits not a prohibition on something like thou shalt not, whatever. It's a thou shalt not go over. It's a strange it's a strange law, but it is about but prudence. Yeah, should be taken into account of it so that one need not, in my judgment, um, confess going 56 into 55. Um, although one should consider if it's right to do so in a particular circumstance. Mm-hmm. You could easily envision situations where going 56 would be imprudent um, and dangerous in that way. Torrential downpour. You're driving a rental car. You're on a road that sure. you've never been on before. It's probably the haste yeah. that you are exhibiting is probably unmerited given the relative importance of that engagement towards which you're hurting. Something like that, you know? Yeah. yeah. And, you want to have, and you also <clears throat> want to, as a... I think because we believe in the common good and because we believe laws are meant to help the common good and to coordinate things and because we can't foresee all the consequences of our actions and such, even though we think, oh, I know that it's good for me, exception in this case, it is it is a sense, it's virtuous, I would say, to, to have a respect for law and to, to aim to obey it in all these ways and to be obedient to law um, as a kind of first impulse. Yeah. So that we shouldn't take it for granted that obviously we can go as fast as we want unless we're not, we're not the law givers. We don't decide the law except we vote on it and we can petition these sort of things. But so we should, uh, yeah, the first response should always be to be attentive to it and to obey the law. And then the question is, what does obeying the law in these particular circumstances look like? And that's potentially just like traffic light. If you're, you know, if you're, if you're, your wife is, is pregnant or something and it's red light and you have to get to the emergency room or any situation, the the law appreciates that. They appreciate that there are circumstances that even though you're not allowed to go through red lights, in this case, it would be insane if you didn't, as long as it wasn't jeopardizing other people's lives, this sort of thing. Oftentimes, police officers will like assist people to do that. So that's, that's the prudential aspect to law. That law is, again, a general thing that has to be general, uh, but in particular cases prudential calls by the legislators and by those participating are important. Yeah, and I think that, like you said, it depends on the circumstance, both both the external circumstances, so the environment. It depends on the particular action that's being performed, but it also it depends on you. That's true. So I think there's a difference between, you know, I had mass today in Mitchellville, Maryland, and I drove home 25 minutes. And what was I driving home to do? I was driving home for a community meal, but I had plenty of time to make it for that. And so if I were to exhibit haste, that just displays a, a hasty disposition. It's not that I'm, I'm being hasty for a particular thing mm-hmm. because I can be equally present to the Lord on the road as I can be in my cell. I mean, I can be more present to him in the chapel in as much as he dwells there substantially and sacramentally. But, um, but I, can, I can be recollected in that situation. It's not like I, I need to skip over this experience in order to get to the real life because real life is always... Present. So present and possible. <clears throat> yeah. The good life can be present to you in all circumstances that you attend to it. Um, yeah, that's important. Whereas like, say you have, you know, a father of five and he's on his, you know, he works 65 hour weeks and he really, really treasures the time in the evening during which he can uh, enjoy his children's company, sit him on his knee, hear about their, their days, about their struggles, about their sadnesses, uh, console them, comfort them. He, he, he experiences a greater urgency, I think, at the end of the day to get home. And that's not to say that he can't be present to God in the car in the way that he can be present to God at home, but there's a way in which he's present to the Lord in his family that's peculiar and, and proper to his state. And part of his being married and having children means he's bound up with those people's lives mm-hmm. in a really urgent and intense way. So for him, to go a couple miles an hour faster on his way home than I might perhaps seems to me prudent, 
just uh, kind of foreseen by the law and appropriate. And it's, it certainly adds an element to, to the, the calculation and the, and the moral reasoning behind how we drive and such. And so it adds, it's, a, it's another good that he has that brings into it. It doesn't say that, therefore, you disobey laws that would fight against this because there's obviously a hierarchy of goods and a hierarchy of laws and this sort of thing. But it's certainly something to be taken into account. And for us who care about law, but also really about virtue, um, it's the inner dispositions and those habits that we're forming about obedience and about aiming for the goods that is taken into account with that. That's right. Yeah. And so I think, you know, just to kind of wrap up, maybe maybe it's disappointing that we haven't set a number. Like, you should feel fine going X number of miles an hour above the mm. speed limit because I, I don't think that's appropriate and it doesn't take account of the complexity of the law and the complexity of your own life, the complexity of the circumstances and of your individual prudence. But if you're looking for a number that you think is bigger than, you know, like other people would fain admit, then that might be an occasion for self-examination and just say, why am I rushing? And how, Lord, in this new year can I better enjoy the way? Mm. Not not to make of it a silly or faux spirituality, but to work on being present to the Lord, to work on being receptive to and docile to the law and its instruction, Mm -hmm. and to seek in that um, a kind of encouragement to the good. Uh, something that pertains to the to the common good of the polity and something that can really help shape our moral lives. Yeah, because we don't live in vacuums. We're not individuals, atoms spinning in a void, but we're members of a political community. And that community is, is aiming for the good. And the common good, of course, is not only the good of the community, but also God's relationship to us in that community as the kind of essential lawgiver. So following laws and thinking about how we participate in those is a sense of participating in our obedience to God and through his, his ordinances uh, of reason and then through the laws as his own people are uh, promulgating them. Yeah. Nice. All right. So with that, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll wrap things up. You might consider sharing this episode with somebody whom you think might benefit from it. So take a second. Think about somebody whom you've driven with who you think might agonize about the question, or maybe you can give it as a gentle hint to somebody who drives like a maniac. But Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, take a thought, think about it, share it with one of your friends, and then we'll look forward to chatting with you next time on God's Planning. God bless you. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Visit us at opeast.org.